I'm going to invite Samuel to come up and read our scripture from the lectionary this week for Christ the King Sunday from John 18. Um, John 18, verse, starting from verse 33. Pilate went uh, back into the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own, or you have others spoken to you about me? Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom does not originate from this word. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom is not from here. So you are a king, Pilate said. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. What's the truth? Pilate asked. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes you don't have to pick the text for the day. It's great. A king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. A king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. This is a line from a sermon to a congregation in Barcelona by Diedrich Bonhoeffer in 1928. And I think it sums up some of the mystery and the paradox of Jesus' interaction with Pilate in our passage today on Christ the King Sunday. You see, today wraps up the Christian year as a church, and then we start this seasonal spiral of time and head towards our season of Advent. And we're invited on this day to, to kind of stamp Christ's strange sovereignty as like this emphatic punctuation mark on our quote-unquote ordinary time. Christ's strange sovereignty on our ordinary time, over our ordinary time, in our ordinary time. Even that designation has a bit of kind of irony to it, that God works during ordinary time. This is true, and it's comforting, because isn't most of our time ordinary? <laughs> you know, you have all these stats about how the percentage and proportion of your life that you spend sleeping or that you spend eating, or that you buy groceries, or shop online, all these things, is our ordinary time. Our God, working by the Spirit in ordinary time, dispels the myth. And it's a myth that few of us would assent to, but most of us believe that God only draws near to us during high holy seasons, or high holy days, and high holy places through high holy people. But no. Our God is the God of the quote-unquote ordinary. The God of the ordinary. Next week, we'll begin special time. And you, you, all these things deserve scare quotes, right? The special time of Advent where we welcome and prepare and make room for the king. Always have a capital K in that king. For some of us, this concept of Advent is all kind of 
difficult in and of itself. Trust me, I expend not a little bit of energy in my household, like staving off the title onslaught of Christmas hype and anticipation and Amy Grant music. Like, <laughs> and it's not only for the kids that I'm doing this. I love you, dear. <laughs> it's true, Advent is a time of disciplining our desires but not ultimately towards pretending that Jesus hasn't already been born. That's, that's a silly errand for us. It's a disciplining of our desires as we wait in hope, in love, in joy, in peace towards Christ's second arrival, which hasn't occurred yet. Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's, it's his second advent or coming when he'll bring justice, renew the face of the earth, make things right, and stamp his strange sovereignty as an emphatic punctuation on this in-between kind of ordinary time between his first and second comings. That's what we're doing in Advent. That's what we're waiting for. Because Advent lives in this tension strung out between first and second comings, it resists our normal impulses towards preciousness and sentimentality. I'm not going to say that we might not have some precious and sentimental moments in a few weeks during the Oak Kids Christmas pageant. That's a plug for that. Keep that on your calendars. But it's also a time of much subversion and this kind of quiet bubbling under the surface of things. If anyone's made bread or, or brewed beer or kombucha or something, this is like the patient ferment that is happening kind of secretly, kind of quietly. It is a time that we examine our orientation, where our desires, where our hearts, where our lives are aimed at. It's where we face a disorientation, like someone spun us around and we're a little dizzy. We don't know where we're headed next. And it's a time to find a new orientation as we reorient our lives towards Christ's return. Church feast days are really good at this sort of disorientation in ways that like widespread holidays aren't. Take, for instance, there's this old Advent practice in Catalonia, in, in Spain, in Italy, in southern France. And it's this character called the Caganer. Does anyone know about the Caganer? No? Oh, this is so good. Yes. Awesome. This is not a figurine. It is a figurine, but it's not a figurine that you would find in most of your big box nativity sets, if that's even such a thing, right? The tr this is a traditional Spanish character that moves beyond the, like, the charm of the shepherd boys and the various grazing animals, even beyond the strangeness of these exotic traveling magi who are bearing gifts. The Cagner is often depicted as this peasant in traditional Catalonian garb, like trousers and this red cap called a, a like a baratina. And this Cagner character is always just kind of in the periphery of the scene popping a squat, and it looks something like this. This is, this is a Cagner. It's incredibly irrelevant. I don't, I'm 
I'm glad we don't have someone telling us that we can't put this on our screen, because maybe we shouldn't. I haven't yet talked to Meg also about whether we're going to write this character into the Christmas pageant or not. <laughs> but before you get offended, like, let's look a little deeper at what's going on here. Consider how interrupted and disorienting this is for what Advent has become for us. Our scenes get really sanitized, like literally. Like our, we have this uh, toy play set that we have to like sanitize <laughs> because our kids eat things and smear things, right? How do you expect Jesus to have been born in a cave or a barn or a cave used as a barn without there being the real smells of a farm, right? Perhaps that could be a good practice to draw near to the coming baby King Jesus in the next month or so, is go to a farm and resist the urge to plug your nose. And like, that might get you there a little bodily. So the Cagner is also disorienting because it removes our own sense of righteousness and proprietary like behavior. We're not the right ones. We're not the good ones. We kind of laughed at the Cagner, right? There's this huge controversy in 2006 in Barcelona around this nativity character because they, they, they brought together all these public decency laws that were written into public ordinances to, to kind of disperse street parties, like knock out public urination, control the city's sex trade, like decency things that, that most of us are pro, like good things, especially in my backyard or next door to me, right? Problem, the, the problem is, needless to say, the beloved Cagner was now in violation of city ordinances. Like they have these uh, full, like full or scale size sets on people's front lawns with a larger Cagner that you could not have anymore. So it's like a naughty, uh, like lawn gnome, right, sort of thing. Couldn't have it anymore. An entire cottage industry has grown around these Cagner, uh, Cagner characters, and it, like, they don't just look like the like this guy with the traditional garb. They poke fun at famous celebrities who take themselves too seriously. Like there's a whole shelf of like the Barcelona football team right here. Uh, Tiger Woods is at the top. Uh, the Queen of England's over there. Uh, Super Mario, C-3PO, Groucho Marx, all sorts. Uh, it, it's, it's this whole industry, right? It seems that this version of Advent, while fun, and, and like kind of delves deeply into our worst like potty humor sensibilities, right? But it also has this like deep satirical political edge to it. Like to have Theresa May or Vladimir Putin or some, someone with their drawers down kind of says that the, the emperor has no clothes, right? That awaiting the king in this kind of mode means unmasking all sorts of phony kings is what's happening here. So the Kaganer, while bad for public policy, is actually kind of good theology in some sense. The Kaganer keeps the nativity scene real. It keeps it body and bodily. It removes any pretense from the birth of Jesus that that, that birth was just so. That the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, right? Like, 
<laughs> it should remove the pretense for us too. That walking with this King Jesus should be like this clean and antiseptic and unmuddied journey for us. If we're going to walk with this King, this journey, this journey is going to be full of imperfections and inefficiencies and real bodies. People who tell and laugh at the wrong jokes. Maybe you had this at your Thanksgiving meal. Or kids who like pick their noses and like report their past gas, right? Like that's what is going to be involved with our walking with Jesus. Neighbors whose lawns and lives are as messy as the one that you and I try desperately hard to keep looking tidy and calm and cool and collected. A caganer is a reminder, an interruption, a, a witness to this sort of not from around here kind of king who brings this strange kingdom into the real world with all its joys, with all its hurts, with even embarrassments and bodily functions. Adam Harrelson states, the offering of gold and frankincense and myrrh, are, those offerings are completed by the Kaganer's offering of, I'll remove the expletive, of crap, right? It's exactly in this disorientation, this scandal, which we find Jesus' interaction with Pilate, a strange king standing before the acting quote-unquote king. Coming before Advent, I like to think of this scene presented to us kind of in movie terms, like a Christopher Nolan movie, where we get like flashed to one of the final scenes given to us up front, and we don't really know who the characters are or how we got here or what's going on, and then we'll flash backwards to kind of tell the whole story, and eventually our scenes will meet. We flash backwards to the nativity story of Mary and Joseph's immigrant pilgrimage to Bethlehem, and then their subsequent, subsequent refugee flight from Herod's genocidal threat, and they go to Egypt. Eventually, the narrative of this life of this strange king lines up with this dramatic scene where his kingdom is in the balance. Along the way, there, there's all these little inflection points where Jesus could have chose something really differently or everything could have been changed. We have some of those in our own life where we look back and said, if I had made the opposite decision, my whole life would have been different. I wouldn't have met so-and-so. I wouldn't have been such-and-such. One of those scenes is this temptation in the desert scene for Jesus. When the accuser, uh, the Greek word for that is ha-satan, Satan, the accuser, the one who, who twists and tells Jesus lies, he tests Jesus to set up a kingdom rather differently. Built around false promises and warped truths, and he offers him sustenance and power and glory and safety. And instead, Jesus repeatedly chooses to rely on God, trusting on God's word, spilling out God's word that has been hidden inside of him. This 40-day trial then culminates in Jesus participating in John the Baptist's baptism for sinners. That's one of the craziest things about that scene that we so take for granted. Why Jesus had to be baptized. A sinner's baptism. His joining in with us. And then this life with sinners continues in small vignettes. Like, you know how 
good TV shows and movies kind of show these little scenes that kind of move us along the ti timeline. And these scenes are eating and hanging with and blessing and touching the strangest people, the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. Jesus seems to be kind of equal parts healer and traveling rabbi sage and prophet and performance artist and party host and community organizer and fisherman and gardener, but he's zero parts warrior king that they're expecting. It's a strange kingdom that he brings indeed. Great New York preacher, Fleming Rutledge, who's preached hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons, she comments on this strangeness. She says, as a preacher of the gospel for a great many years, I testify that this message makes less sense to me now than it did when I got started. It's all so irreligious, so unspiritual, so unreasonable. But that is precisely the point that Paul makes when he says that the gospel of the crucified Lord is a scandal to Jewish people and foolishness to Gentile people. Scandal and foolishness. Pilate can't conceive of what's going on or who Jesus is. This kangaroo court trial was set up from the beginning. Jesus was brought on trumped-up charges because he was disturbing the religious peace. To their sensibilities, he was kind of the Kaganer character, right? Always creating the wrong kind of scene or at least kind of ruining the scene that they had prepared. Pilate's operating here like some sort of local branch manager for the Roman Empire, too. Like, he, he's just kind of keeping the peace that isn't really peace, and this is something prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah would really have words for. He just wants to keep this Pax Romana, the Roman peace, set up. He doesn't really care how any of this really goes. He just wants it fixed. We should be wary if we're in positions like this where we can kind of always appeal unthinkingly to just the way things are and the way things have to be. We're just doing our job, just keeping the peace. Those are just the rules. I'm just enforcing them. That's just the way things are. I'm not in charge. I just, I just keep the rules. And without the rules, where would we be? Chaos. Jesus always answers a question with a question. And I don't think he does this in like the way our modern politicians do to kind of dodge things, right? I think he does this in a way to guide Pilate into asking the right questions. Pilate's asking questions, but he's not asking the right questions, the real questions. And then this interaction that Samuel read, um, it ends with Pilate actually asking the question, what is truth? Jesus has, has guided him and gotten him there. Maybe, though, he should have asked who is the truth if, if, we're, if we're really tracking. Jesus tries to start to tell him about this not-from-around-here kind of kingdom that he's running, inaugurating, bringing into the world, which, if it was from around here, would have been a lot more bloody than it already had started. This kingdom is not a violent revolutionary type. We'll find that in the last few chapters of John. But if not from around here, then from where? That's what Pilate's trying to figure out. 
from where does this kingdom originate and why does that matter? John's gospel tells this story for us. This is part of the flashback. But John's gospel does this in a really particular and unique way. We get this in our Advent season where you have all of those genealogy stories in most of the, most of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have their own ways of describing Jesus' family tree and his birth. And John's story is much more mysterious and cosmic. We know Jesus' origin as the word made flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is both the same and different sort of genesis than what we're used to. Used to. This Word was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. John's gospel locates Jesus' origin not in the cattle stall in Bethlehem in the first century, but with God forming creation from void, the light that shines in darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. You can see this disconnect like with Pilate and Jesus. They're talking in the same place and talking about the same things, but they're not talking about the same things. Pilate wants a street address, and Jesus, the man standing in front of him in a brown Middle Eastern body in chains, is alluding to something infinitely deeper. Pilate, like the temple elites who put Jesus in front of Pilate, doesn't have like the vocabulary and the attention and the imagination to even interact with what Jesus is bringing to this conversation. When that happens in our lives, we are often too quick to just cast that out, to screen it out. Rather than engage, rather than hold this tension, we just want to move on, keep the peace. We've made this moving on even easier and more technologically efficient. I can't imagine how small of a blip this trial in front of Pilate would have been on a, like our current news cycle. Like I'm not even sure it would make like the bottom Chiron of our, one of our cable news channels that this was happening, Jesus and Pilate. Maybe a tweet or two or something like that, right? Jesus seems hesitant. He hesitates to even like take the name king from Pilate. He says, you say that I'm a king. <laughs> Are you a king? You say that I'm a king. That mantle doesn't really fit him. They've never seen a real king. Sure, there's, there have been like mostly good kings and even some really bad kings. So you could tell what a good king was like by like the photo negative of that. Like, not that guy is a good king, right? But a king like this hadn't existed. Couldn't have existed. So Jesus' reasoning is, why wear a crown that's both too small and too shiny, that doesn't fit, that's not right? Jesus wouldn't be boxed into being a violent king. That'd be too small of packaging for a kingdom which originated in the beginning with God. He's the creative king. He's the, the king of creation. His creative kingdom, like the means and the ends, is towards the renewal of all creation, which includes us. 
Jesus is the one, we sang it earlier, anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Luke 4, quoting Isaiah 61, which is kind of like our charter. That's like our thing as Oak Church. Oaks of righteousness to display God's splendor. I can't help but feel like we've been really close to this sort of clash of kingship and imagination like this weekend. We, we've talked about it a little bit. Um, on Friday, it was the arrest of our neighbor and brother in Christ, Samuel Oliver uh, Bruno, uh, Samuel. Samuel's been um, in sanctuary at City Well down the street living in their basement for the past like 11 months and doing work for them and receiving some aid. Many of you know about him uh, and have been faithful to pray for him and his family. We do that every week. It, he's always in the, the email. Um, some of you have met him. Some of you have brought him meals. Some of you have done his laundry. On Friday, he was scheduled for like this routine biometric scan in carry to, in order to like continue his appeal process to, uh, uh, for his deferred action for his deportation order. And Samuel was ordered out of the country about a year ago after several decades of really, like, really beautiful and productive citizenship, quote unquote citizenship. His long run in with the legal system came when he like hastily tried to come back here because his wife had just had open heart surgery and he, he needed to be with her and he used bad papers and he says if he had known what that would have caused him and cost him, he never would have done it and he really regrets having taken those measures. So he had been drawn out of sanctuary and he was in line to have his fingerprints taken and he was tackled and arrested by plainclothes ICE officers. And like this whole thing is kind of a trap. What proceeded was really quite a scene. People singing and putting their bodies around the vehicle to delay Samuel, Samuel from being taken away. You can see this video on, on uh, the News Observer website. It's, it's really troubling, but I, uh, I invite you to, to, to see it. The ICE officers and the spokespeople continue to repeat things on how they're just doing their job and just following the rules and it's not really in their hands to do anything else. They're just keeping the peace, peace, peace. I was struck in one of the interviews in the News Observer article, one of the participants is really puzzled that the ICE officials would treat Samwell any differently than they've treated him for the last 11 months inside the walls of Citywell. In her imagination, sanctuary is not a place, but a people. Like, Samwell has been receiving sanctuary at a physical location of Citywell, but his sanctuary has primarily been the church, capital C church, the Iglesia, which surrounded him for this last 11 months, continues to surround him even as he's incarcerated. Like, he's still has sanctuary. This is like the strange kingdom inbreaking and embodied with its own kind of word made flesh logic, which is really dissonant and incoherent. It's, it's unbelievable to someone like Pilate or, or like Ice. 
who has their own kind of internal logic that's power consolidating and self-reinforcing. This is like the same kind of not from around here kingdom logic, which has been the, this other story that I found in the news. It, these folks in, um, in the Netherlands and in, in Hague have been holding around the clock worship services, this, this small Christian community about our size. So this is not a mega church. It's a small Dutch community that's been holding around-the-clock worship services for the last four weeks and counting because police officials in the Netherlands aren't allowed to enter a church while they're worshiping, and they're trying to protect uh, an Armenian refugee couple from being arrested and deported. Talk about, like, a holy filibuster, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> talk about, like, the word becoming flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood. Talk about praying without ceasing. Talk about submit your bodies as a living sacrifice. Talk about a mighty fortress is our God. Well, you might say it's mighty. I say it's like not from around here, right? So you're invited to get in on this sacrificial and creative action of this not from around here kingdom. There's a few things that you can actually do um, Brian, like, these are some really actionable things that you can do. Any money that goes goes straight to Sam Wells' um, legal fees and, and just even what it would keep, uh, what it has been um, taking to keep him alive in, in that building. Um, you can call Congressman Price or Butterfield, call the Wake County Sheriff's Office and, and, and just, at, like, ask them, interrupt them, and say, um, we, we hope that you don't treat our brother this way. You can follow for updates. And, and we'll have a chance during potluck to, to write cards. Because um, sometimes lost in all this, and when these stories blow up and become news, we lose that they're people. Like last night we heard, um, we heard Sam Wells' wife, Julia, try to say something, um, but she, she couldn't stop crying long enough to say something. Uh, we heard from uh, his son, Daniel. And, and we heard him say things like, my dad would be so happy <laughs> to know that you guys care about me. Uh, and he says, I, I, I trust that, that like God will protect him like God protected Daniel in the lion's den. Like I'm coming into that, that meeting thinking about how scared he must be. And there's words about how happy he is. <laughs> Does it make any sense? So you're invited. You're invited to participate in this in some way, even like maybe a small way. But I think those small ways are big ways because you're invited to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you no longer conform to the patterns of this world. Because Paul also reminds us in his letter to the Philippians that he wrote from jail, by the way, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're invited to join in this prayer and in, in this action. You're invited to join in this waiting, this anticipation, this making room for the arrival of the king, capital K, who's not from around here, but who is here. Will you join me in prayer?
Father, we thank you for uh, your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for your son um, who you gave to us because you love this world so much, all of it, um, even the people that uh, threaten you and kill you or walk away from you or ignore you. We thank you for your spirit that gives us your presence in ordinary time and space. It gives us your presence, all of you, uh, wherever we are. We thank you that when we say things like sanctuary, they, um, they don't really mean the things that Webster's Dictionary might say. It's not really a place, it's, it's a people. We thank you that you've invited us to be the church, to surround each other, to stand in for each other, to uh, love in real time and in messy real circumstances. And we thank you for your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name.